Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. Today we will be covering macroeconomic trends and the business case for enterprise localization. The conversation will revolve around the current economic climate, forecasting demand and supply in the next year or so, and the general appetite for translation and localization in the enterprise sector. To speak to me about this subject, I'm joined by John Finley. John Finley is the CEO of Lionbridge, the pioneer and leader in translation and localization services. As CEO, he's leading their 6,000 employees in 23 countries. Since joining Lionbridge, John has led a major transformation of the company and returned it to growth. Prior to joining Lionbridge, John was the CEO of Higher Right, a leader in the HCM technology space. There, he engineered a major turnaround effort that resulted in record revenue and earnings growth and led to a successful sale of the company. He has also held executive leadership positions at a number of information services companies, including Thomson Reuters and SunGuard. John, welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast. Thanks for having me. John, for people listening to you for the first time, I know you're very famous in our industry. I would like you to introduce yourself (laughs) (laughs) and tell them about yourself, about your background. Yeah, thanks, Salt. It's great to be here today. So um, I have been with Lionbridge now for uh, close to five and a half years. And prior to that, I was the CEO of a company in a completely different space in in the HR human capital management space, technology. And prior to that, it worked for a lot of large uh, technology data type companies. And so uh, I started out many, many moons ago in the sales organization of a big Wall Street firm and then worked my way up. And uh, and as luck would have it, I landed at Lionbridge and it's been uh, and it's, it's been a long journey, an interesting one, one I wouldn't trade for anything. And it's been great to be at Lionbridge. Fascinating. Well, Lionbridge is lucky to have you at the helm. Uh, how Thanks. did you find yourself in translation and localization business? That's that's an interesting story. Yes, and, and as oftentimes happens, it's never a straight line. So right. I had uh, I, I I knew somebody and said, you know, you should talk to these folks, and they're interested in a CEO. And um, I, I, I it's a very long story, but I'll make it shorter. So I I had been approached by a few people actually to join um, another company in the language space. And um, and 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 I really wasn't interested. And then somebody called me a few weeks later, and I was like, "Oh, I don't I don't want to talk about that." And, and they said, "No, it's different. You should talk to these guys. They're they're good guys." And they just bought this language company, and I did. And so um, Lionbridge had been a public company; had just gone private, and the founder was leaving, and they were looking for somebody to come in. Um, and so we hit it off. Um, really liked um, the, the the firm that had that had bought um, Lionbridge, and. You know, I thought that they were um, had a good vision and a good strategy on what to do with it. The more research I did on the space and realized how big the space was, 
and how interesting it was. And it had a lot of characteristics I really liked. It was global, it was a big market, there was lots of opportunity, and all those things proved to be true. And so, you know, one thing led to another, but it was, you know, like lots of things, it was a quirk in some respects um, that I ended up there. I had multiple opportunities to do different things in my life at that point. I'm glad I took the Limebridge opportunity. So tell me uh, about your experience in this industry. And since you uh, started with Linebridge, what has really stood out to you in your tenure over the years? Was it technology? Was it some sort of an event within the industry? Was it economy that, that took some of your time and attention and that you think about? Multiple aspects. There are the complexity of the language business surprised me um, as I assumed it was relatively straightforward. And the way I think about the language business is you take content, you transform the content, you send it to a translator, they send it back, you repackage it, and then you send it back to the customer. Seems relatively straightforward. Yeah. Uh, found out the hard way that that's not always the case, that there's lots of different permeations of workflows. And I found that we have some somewhere in the deep history of Limebridge, I think we've identified about 35,000 workflows that we've, we've, we've implemented over the years and customized for customers. Now, I think that's a variation of probably about 10 workflows. Um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing is the, the the size of the industry and how pervasive it is and how it touches almost every industry that's out there. And then the very pleasant surprise about the language industry is the people. The people have been amazing. Uh, I found people from all walks of life, very interesting backstories that are, um, and I think in, I think it is the nicest industries I, I've ever worked in. I, very interesting people. Um, doing really good things for folks. You know, one of the things I impress upon our, our team all the time is if you think about all the products and the services that we help localize around the world that are literally used by billions of people. There's 8 billion people in the world. We do things at Lionbridge that a billion plus people use every day. It's either a product that's been localized, packaging, documentation, videos, whatever it may be, but it's very pervasive. And, and we lose track of that sometimes. And, and, and how meaningful the work that we do, do or is and how many lives it touches in people's day-to-day -day lives. Uh, because our industry is so global in nature, we are actually helping people live better lives, whether it's the translators, project managers, or the end users of our products, the people who read our translations, so their lives sure. become easier, right? So in a way, we are an enabler of um, quality of life in the world. No question. When we got here, we rebranded the company. And, and one of the things we're really searching for is, all right, what is the right, how should we think about language? How do we think about language? And we came up with uh, breaking barriers and building bridges. And I thought that was very apropos, not only for our own company, our own people, but that's what we do every day is we try to take content, whether it's product, whether it's service, whether it's medical advice, whether it's clinical trials, whatever it might be. And we try to connect it with people and we break down barriers, cultural barriers, language barriers, understanding barriers. And I think that's the, the very cool thing about the entire space. And, and, and I am an unabashed globalist. And, uh, and, and and we'll backtrack for that. I think the more connected we are, the better off we are all, all are for it. And in an age when, you know, I think half the populations are probably heading in different directions, certainly in this country, and there's more populism and nationalism and barriers being um, thrown up. I remain very strongly of mind that that's not the way to go. And the more outreach and the more cultural collaboration and cross collaboration across markets we have, that we'll, we'll all be better off for it. Given uh, your expertise, your uh, prism that you have through which you see the world and um, in particular the economy globally, 
I decided to invite you to speak about macroeconomic trends and the business case for localization, something that today will enable economy in so many different ways. You lead a super MLV. Linebridge is, you know, has its hands in so many different industries. What is your perspective and how does the landscape today look like in general? If you go back 18 months ago, most of the expert prognosticators were forecasting a deep recession that would have occurred by now. Obviously, it hasn't, uh, which is good news, it, not to say that it won't. And is there a soft landing? Is there a hard landing? And there's a lot of people that, that get paid quite nicely to try to predict that every single day. I think the markets have been confused. Interest rates have certainly gone up. What hasn't changed, in my view, is that companies are pursuing global markets unabashedly. I haven't seen no pullback from companies finding new consumers. And in, in the world we live in, um, I haven't seen any customers come back and say, hey, for business strategic reasons, we're pulling back on these markets. In fact, we want to expand our language set. There's new markets we want to get into. There's new consumer bases we think that we can tap into. And I think the world inherently at a corporate, a corporate level at a business level, at a macro level, becomes more global by the day. And that flies in the face of a lot of news that's out there. It's certainly supply chains is a different story. There's, there, you'll see contraction as we've seen it in supply chains and reworking of supply chains, which I think makes a lot of sense in, in, in many ways. Uh, and each of those, each industry has a different supply chain and a different set of dynamics. But as far as the overall revenue goal of most companies, most large companies are global. Most have global aspirations. Most have, you know, a fairly clear view on where they think market share can come from. And that's where the language industry comes into play. And so I think we'll see uh, a continued move forward by companies to try and find new markets. And along the way, typically the language company comes in and supports them. Let me ask you about how your enterprise clients or enterprise clients in our industry how can they positively use the current conditions and with the help of our industry, which is localization and the output of translation, to weather economic uh, headwinds ahead, whatever it might be, it may not be as bad as initially predicted? Good question. I'm not sure it's a clear-cut answer. I, I think it's a combination of, uh, of technology and to do more with less. I mean, you'll, you see some pressure on budgets. As I said, I think there's a continued demand to go out and find new customers and to use language to do it. One of the things that we came up with is localize everything. And so how do we help co customers who thought about in a very finite way, okay, this is all I can afford to localize, but I have big content sets that I want to bring to the market. How do I do that? And how do I provide more insight in, into a return on investment? What are people consuming? What are they reading? What are they buying? If I'm localizing right. it, is it actually turning into revenue? And the more insight that I we've helped and we've developed quite a bit over this, the last couple of years in this front is okay, not only can we help you localize content, we can tell you a lot more about what's happening with that content, what kind of engagement you're getting, what kind of ROI it's bringing back. And I think that's super important. And, and the more value added you have to bring to customers, they can justify localization, they can justify spending money on language, and they can justify spending more money on content. I think all those are critical as LSPs move forward in a you know relatively commoditized business. You have to bring more value added to the customer. We are almost at the tail end of Q1 in 2023. Uh, where do you see localization and translation fit into 
the enterprise client's strategy in the context of economic uncertainty. My view is they're all treading water to a degree to see if really there's been, you know, sea changes in, in markets. And so what we've seen in the beginning of the year is fairly steady from the, the first part of 22 and not a big change. There's a lot of discussion about budgets, probably more so than most years. But I do see that, uh, and, and the motto we have is, is, is do more with less. And, and I think companies are trying to come, come across ways to do that. I think you'll see um, more innovation that will come from any kind of downturn that you have. Uh, technology has to do more in a people-related business. I mean, I go back, and I know we've talked about this before, is there are still a lot of manual processes in the language business. We think about machine learning, we think about AI, we think about new technologies that have been introduced into the space or continue to do so. Um, innovation, in some respects, is 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 it a, is it a, is it a bit of a fulcrum for us in localization in language space. But I think any downturn you get typically in any industry, in, in any seismic events that happen, if you go back to the financial crisis, you always see lots of things that germinate from there that you wouldn't even thought about a couple of years ago. So language business to me is in a transition phase saying, how do we go from what has been a services-based industry to more tech-enabled services, if not technology, to actually help people do a lot more with their content, to understand it, to segment it, to deliver a lot back, a lot more insight, additional insight and metrics back to customers around content. Looking at the trends, I mean, macroeconomically, we see that interest rates, which are headlines today, they were on a path to incline, at least until last month. Do you see that as a hindrance to localization business? I would assume that things such as M&A would be affected, for example. But what about how localization companies spend? Uh, does that actually put some sort of a squeeze on their spending budget? How about their clients or end clients spending this year? Big question. Lot, lots of different ways that can go. I would say, you know, just if you take the people cost of things with inflation and interest rate rise, uh, for any company, you want to pay people more money every year and people's expectations, certainly in, in when, when rates are going up and prices are going up, is you have to pay people more. So you have to pay people more. Can you pass through price increases? And, 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 and that's an ongoing discussion, I think, in most industries, including our own. Uh, the cost of capital is certainly higher, and we've seen a lot of M&A in the language space over the last five years. That's certainly cooled down. You continue to see VC money come into the space, which I always say follow the money. It tells you quite a bit. Uh, and so there's a belief, I think, by technology investors that there is a, a big addressable market that's out there. Uh, PwC estimates the language market to be $55-ish billion a year. That's a very large market. And there's continued innovation that comes into that. Will long-term rates stay here? My own view is they'll go down. I think you know demographics come into play at some point, and do we go back to a deflationary environment? I don't know. In the short term, it definitely will put it have an impact as it already as it already has had on M and A. It puts pressure on companies of all types, including language companies, to 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 continue to to, to keep pace with employee expectations and and then can you pass prices increases through how do you increase revenue to pay for that etc so it certainly creates more challenges uh than we've dealt with in the last five plus years i mean we've been in a very very low interest rate environment for 20 years literally which is which has led to fairly steady increase in employment uh, a low growth world that we've lived in and the asset class owners in that 20 year period have gotten 
have, have fared very, very well. Um, the lower end of the workforce, not as well. And what will this mean with a spike in rates? Is it sustainable? Does it contract? I think we all want to know, but it's a, it's, it creates a more difficult operating environment to work in. Just to put that into perspective, um, for people in our industry, do you think the credit squeeze as a result of that spike or increase in rates has stabilized? Uh, and, and as a follow-up, do you think our industry can expect a return to pre-pandemic level of spending in the next 12 months? Uh, if we only had crystal balls, they, they could speak. <laughs> um, I, I'm bullish on the long-term uh, nature of you know spend and language. And, and what we've seen is the, the, the nature of the business has changed a bit where uh, the volume of transactions or projects continues to increase, the size of them um, decreases, hence more pressure on using technology. If you have customers that send you four or 5,000 projects a day, very, very difficult, if not impossible, to process those manually. So, so will the spend continue to be there? I think so. I think language will be, you know, obviously there's ChatGPT, there's a lot of things that are changing right now. Uh, and um, I think you will see consolidation um, continuing at some point with 25,000 plus LSPs that are out there, it will be harder and harder to do things manually. And my sense is that a lot of the larger LSPs will pick up smaller LSPs, who will join, translation agencies will join uh, bigger enterprises to, to get more flow. Um, it will be an interesting few years, to say the least. Let's shift our focus onto um, something that, you know, uh, it's a headline these days. We have seen lots of layoffs in major tech companies where so, sadly thousands of people have lost their jobs. And it's also true for localization uh, teams and departments. But these companies, these platforms still have to deliver their products and services in those markets for their customers. How can they maintain the same level of uh, service? You know, I'm talking about localization by making sure that their customers are served as well. A very good question. We haven't seen a lot of pullback in localization teams, uh, and we've got a big exposure to tech companies. I've, there's also a perspective needed as the, the number of layoffs, I think, in the tech industry, as I read last week, is about 117,000. That's still down substantially in the amount of hiring that's been done in the last two years. So if you go back to pre-COVID levels, employment's not back to pre-COVID levels. It's still above that. So I think there's there, you have to bring some perspective to that. With any downturn, what we've seen historically is that there's vendor consolidation. There are uh, ways, again, from an innovation standpoint, that workflow customers will think about doing things that they wouldn't have thought in flusher times, saying, oh, okay, Maybe we can re-examine workflow. Maybe we can look to ways to simplify the process. Maybe we don't need three reviewing processes, we need two. There's a myriad of different ways to do that, but I think what you'll see as it comes out of this is the ability to innovate, the ability to be smart with customers, to figure out ways that they can do more. And uh, you know, if history's a guide, it, it almost always plays out that way. Let's look at uh, another macro trend in our industry, John. And you earlier talked about following the money when it comes to VCs. How yeah. do you see the interest from the investor community today? In the past few years, we, see, we saw a lot of investment coming in. Is it still the same? Do you see it growing, slowing down? When you think of investment, at least I do, I think of it in two buckets. So you have M&A investment. You, you've had a lot of private money that's come in, and, and particularly in Europe, and bought a lot of LSPs. And you've had uh, venture capital money that has come in and funded data training startups, MT startups, uh, 
some localization companies, some tech companies. That continues to a degree. Uh, not, I think, with the frothiness that's been there for the last couple of years. And the M&A window has certainly slowed down. Will that return to where we were? I don't know. I think valuations got a little bit ahead of where the market was over the last few years. We looked at certainly a number of acquisitions that just became very expensive um, when when you brought some logic to it and you know projected into the future. So I think it's actually a very good thing. Like all all things, nothing goes up forever. And so you need to hit plateaus, if not come down a little bit, consolidate and then go forward. So the long-term trend of consolidation will continue. The long-term trend of investment will continue. I don't think we've completely hit the pause button, but it's certainly slowed. And and again, a very natural business cycle dynamic where you have consolidation, you have a retesting evaluations, a reassessment of what the growth prospects are for a space. And I think we're seeing that play out in the localization business as we speak. This podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human in the loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. John, let me ask you uh, something um, with regards to your perspective as the CEO of LineBridge. You, when you look at your dashboard, your company handles so many different industries in terms of localization and their technology and marketing needs. Where do you see that which industries are performing well versus which ones are losing in this economy? And I'm just talking about trends so that the industry can focus on those and those industries that are thriving that we could serve better. I assume we all look at the same things. And with any company, you'd like to be with growth areas. And so we made a strategic decision a number of years ago that we would focus on games, video games, life sciences, and technology. We did those for very specific reasons. We believe very strongly in the dynamic of big tech and the impact that technology companies will continue to have, and that's been a good place to be. Plus, they have been at the forefront of so much of the localization industry since the inception of what I will call the modern-day localization space. So that remains a very big focal point for us. Games is an interesting one where we had a footprint in games, and then we looked at it and said with testing and, and localizing and doing audio for video games, the market, I, I went to a conference years ago, and I saw a slide that somebody was presenting and said there were a billion 1.8 billion gamers in the world. So I said, okay, that's a big number. The next year I went back and saw another presentation at a conference and it was 2.7 billion people played video games. And at that point, I think there were 7.8 billion people in the world. And I said, "How? whatever the number is, it's a big number. So right. that's a space that I like, a space that I want to play in. We've had a great offering in that space and it continues to grow. And we've grown exponentially in the game space. We'll continue to put a lot of focus on our games business. Life sciences, different end of the spectrum, different dynamic from a demographic standpoint with lots of older people that consume more healthcare, more drugs, more more um, advertising for drugs. You can't go on some TV stations, podcasts, whatever it might be, and not hear an advertisement for a drug. And localization plays a big part of that is they're inherently global, as is the games business, as is the tech business. So we strategically pick those three as, as three large areas of focus for us. When we look across the spectrum, we play in almost every industry that's out there. Um, automotive is fascinating. We've had a big footprint in automotive for years. The transition to electric vehicles is one that we have been um, quite keen and involved in, in battery, lithium, et cetera, in, in, in trying to help companies localize some startups. 
some bigger ones that are morphing in 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 production from combustible engines to, to EVs, et cetera. And you go around the world and you think about all the different industries and where they are at various points of time. Again, our sweet spot is the S&P 500, Fortune 1000 global set of companies that are big, that operate at scale across multiple markets. And uh, I, I don't think we're smart enough to be able to pick winners and losers within that. We do know that you know big, complex companies that operate at scale in multiple countries are where we want to be. And they're and they, even when they're in a in a downturn in in an economic cycle, it doesn't mean they stop localizing either. We talked earlier about how translation and localization industry as a whole can help companies perform better during these difficult times, if you call it difficult. How do you suggest they should leverage these opportunities to identify those gaps to fill them? It goes back to what uh, I mentioned previously. Knowing more about what your content is doing is going to take on a new premium. And so a lot of what we have to do is go back and arm our end customer with information that they can go back to the firm and say to the product teams, to the marketing teams, what you're doing is working or what you're doing isn't working. And we can give you a lot of data about the quality of your content, um, how translatable it is, how expensive it is to translate, what it looks like to the end consumer. Are you getting more engagement on your websites, with your products, with the content? Can you justify continued spend? Should I increase spend? And I think the next phase of localization in many ways is a lot more about data and analytics than it is pure translation. And it will be a more sophisticated market, a more technology-driven market. And if you're not providing that type of insight to customers, I don't think you'll remain very competitive. Let's take a look at geography. While most of the Western world is recovering from the pandemic, China is an exception, and and they're also on path to recovery, and other countries are still dealing with persistent health and economic problems, right? Yeah. What markets, John, present the biggest opportunities for American and European companies to expand to, to look at? Well, the U.S. remains the the largest translation market. Europe is a, a... always a super focal point for us. Just the nature of Europe language is is at a premium in Europe, just with the, 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 the geographic nature of different countries, different cultures. The U.S. is much more homo- homogeneous. Asia to me is always fascinating. Dynamic growth. We grew at uh, 30, 40 percent in Asia last year after a couple tough COVID years there. Uh, love the dynamics of what's happening in Asia. We've got an operation in China. Uh, fascinating what's happening there, and, and there's we could talk for hours about the you know some of the Chinese companies that are trying to go global, et cetera. Uh, work we do there, the game space, the life sciences space, uh, super attractive in Asia to us, and we remain very focused on the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and trying to pick you know places that we think will will provide the biggest return. You know, one of the things that's very difficult you can't do everything. So as much as I would love to say, hey, let's do, let's go all in on Singapore or Hong Kong, China itself is obviously a very complicated, very big market, very difficult for Western companies to navigate, but with you know, the, the allure of, of large returns. But we've had a big footprint in, in Japan and Korea for years where I think we've only scratched the surface. And in Europe, um, as I think about it, it, either by country or by region, amazing opportunities. Uh, and I don't think there's any company that starts today that limits themselves to say, you're in Canada, I'm in the U.S. I'm only going to do business in the U.S. I'm only going to do business in Canada. No, I've built a series of products or I've built a really cool new technology um, application. 
how do I go out and market this to the world as a platform, as a service, whatever it might be? And uh, I don't see any change in that at all. As you know, as you know, we before we started, we were talking about kids, uh, and I, you know, I always found it fascinating. I had a long discussion with somebody on Saturday. They were, oh, the kids don't want to come back to the office. The young people don't want to do this. I my view of young people is they're super connected. They're way more connected with older people. They've grown up on social media. They have connections that older people can't even fathom. When I was when I was a kid, if somebody moved away from your neighborhood, you never talked to them again. Right now, my my son, who's in his twenties, he's still connected with people he knew that were when he was six, seven, eight years old. Which is, you know, I mean, the world is definitely interconnected these days. As much as politicians would like, I think, us to go back into little silos and boxes, the populace of the world is more connected than it's ever been. And from a commerce standpoint, I don't see that changing at all. I completely agree with you. And John, looking at the global picture, do you find that there is a business case to localize content now to attract local customers, consumers within the U.S., for example, sure. that speak other languages within the enterprise's home market? Uh, sure. You know, you have lots of clients in the U.S. who are trying to to in, penetrate markets outside the U.S., but U.S. itself presents a huge market for localization. Does it make sense to be more approachable and presentable as a company to non-English speakers to make up for some of the economic slow performance by the mainstream consumers? Absolutely. I think that's a lot, often overlooked part of the market. If you look at the number of uh, Spanish speakers in the U.S., it's enormous in the tens of millions. Right. And, and then and, and if you look at uh, and if you look at Europe and the immigration flows, I mean, the, the interpretation business um, has boomed for the last 10, 15 years in Europe as you've had an influx of people from all over the world into various countries um, that there are social services that are provided to them and, and the government in many cases will supply an interpreter. And so there's been a boom, boom there. And as we know, the research says that if you can you know, present your set of services or products in a local language to the buyer, your engagement ratio is much higher, right? No surprise. So I think in the US, and I think every country now is more and more global. I was in London a few weeks ago, and this is nothing new with London. You walk around London and and, and you feel you're in this very, very globally connected city with people that you know don't look like each other from all over the world in a very cool way. Uh, and increasingly places that used to look very homogeneous in the world, they don't look like that anymore. I mean, take Toronto where you are. It's one of the most multicultural, multiracial cities in the world. To be one of the coolest cities in the world, how many languages there? I, I, there's a borough here in Queens. I'm in New York City. Um, I read some, there's 142, 145 languages spoken just in this little area of New York City. And so we're increasing global. And I think that is, to your point, a very often overlooked area of the localization space. In our industry, you're known to be a very unique leader. And let me ask you about your leadership style. And given the difficult times that people have been talking about, <laughs> how would you lead Lionbridge with your leadership style to make sure that there's, um, you know, you handle uncertainty, you bring confidence to your staff internally and also to your clients? Great question. Uh, and thank you. Well, I've been talking to our folks a lot the last few weeks about uncertain times and, you know, different things you can do in uncertain times. One is you can put your head in the sand and just wait for the dust to clear. Uh, that's that's never been the, the way I think we should go. And if you think about life, I mean, it's, you know, life is difficult. And but somewhere, somewhere tomorrow in the bleakest of days, the sun always comes up. And so not to lose that perspective. But when times are tough. 
the people that can really lean in and dive in and say, okay, you know, something has changed. Where is their opportunity? We'll find opportunity. And I think this is a fascinating time for us. And what I've really tried to get our folks heads wrapped around is, okay, you know, if you if you just consume the news every single day, it's a bleak world that we live in. But if you think about the bigger picture of long-term trends that remain very positive in a lot of ways, you will find big opportunities there. So the sun will come up tomorrow. Don't become paralyzed because everybody says, oh, this is terrible, this is bad. I go back to what we talked about, the recession. If I listened to The Economist, I would have stopped everything. I would have stopped investing 18 months ago because a massive recession was looming. Now, again, it may come, but we've gone through an 18-month period here where we've continued to see growth. We continue to see employment growth. We continue to see economic growth. And we can't lose that perspective. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, leading is a tricky thing. You can change policies. You can change procedures. Convincing people to change or to do something that maybe is a little bit different what they do that they do every day is tricky. And what I found is I try to explain things in very simple terms and and not lose sight of the fact, you know, what we're trying to do and be transparent and honest. I mean, our employees, I think a lot of employers don't trust their employees. They don't think their employees can handle a certain set of information. And my own personal style is to be as transparent as possible. Um, Try to get everybody up to speed on why we're doing what we're doing and why it makes sense. I always try to put myself in the shoes of an employee and say, okay, if I was sitting there and I see some change coming or strategy, why are you doing that? Why does that make sense? And when and when it and when you go through that, you say, okay, now I understand why the company's doing that. I always feel that you can build followership by informing people. And having them come along the way by telling them this is exactly what we want to do, not some policy that comes from on high and says, here's a memo. We've decided the committee has decided to do this. Please do this instead of, hey, there's a business rationale behind what we're trying to do. This is what we think will make everything better for the company. And so never lose sight of that. Never lose sight of the fact that, you know, there's there's in our case, 6,500 people that have very smart and formed views of life try to inform them. And the hardest thing to do, let alone two people, but 6,500 people, is to get everybody going in the same direction and, and, and to build alignment. And, and that, that remains a challenge to anybody, for, certainly for me, every single day. Very unique way of leading and uh, you know, leadership with a business case, leadership with empathy. I am impressed and I admire that. So let's uh, talk about technology. I mean, there's no conversation today complete without referring to things like ChatGPT. You referenced that earlier. I guess, uh, you know, we have seen the emergence of generative AI and uh, like that and other tools. How will they impact the localization economy this year, John? Uh, Where do you see, will they create new opportunities for LSPs? Well, a bit of a different Vain, I, I was listening to a podcast last night and they had taken the voices of some famous people and I couldn't tell the difference. And so deep fakes are out there. I, I think there's a business, the language business for us to uncover deep fakes. The uh, technologies here, ChatGPT is fascinating. We have a group of people that are immersed in it every single day trying to figure out what it means to the language business, it's a large language model. Large language models have been in existence for a long time. Now, you know, if you think back a month ago, it looked like chat uh, or Bing and ChatGPT and Microsoft was was going to be it. Now, you know, Google's got theirs and China's coming out with different language models. You have competing language models. I don't think it'll be much different in some respects in the different MT engines that are out there for us. I think it'll have a big impact on the language industry. Uh, and we'll certainly see the creation of more content. 
uh, more opportunities and like all changes in, in in very in particular for this one there will be winners and there'll be losers and it'll be complicated and so back to what i talked about before i think it's very important not to have your head in the sand on this one you have to be at the forefront of how do i help people navigate what will be actually fairly complicated or large language models will they scale how do i get lots of content in there how do i use it how do i use the construction of customers how do i advise them on how to do that and so there's a there's a consulting side of this and a services side, which I think trip, typically we've done very, very well as a company and industry that can actually lead the way. And then there's another side to say, hey, there's a discontinuous technology here that's quite disruptive. And how, and, and how do you not become disrupted? And so lots to come in the, in the, you know, the coming weeks, months and years. But th this will undoubtedly generate a lot more content and a lot more potential from a marketing standpoint, a PR standpoint, legal standpoint, and we can go down the list. Um, very exciting. And at the same time, I go back to what we, we discussed earlier is, is the nature of language has changed where we had projects that had thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of words. And now we process projects that have two or three words. And so how do you build a capability, a transaction processing capability to keep ahead of that? and to be able to do it affordably and to provide value for customers. But it's got to be faster. And, you know, the one thing that's always been interesting with the language business is everybody wants super high quality. and Everybody wants super fast turnaround times. And that sounds contradictory and it is contradictory, but our customers want it. And that's where the industry is headed. And how do you use technology to get there? I quite important. There's a lot of smart people working on it, including a lot of smart people that work for us. And the next few years, the next two, three, four, five years in the language space will be very fascinating from a technology standpoint. Do you feel that translation and language industry in general, uh, do you think this industry is prepared to deal with turbulence and economy we talked about earlier, with technology, with the people that we have, and with the mindset? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. I, most most industries aren't and everybody acts like a surprise when you have a big downturn even though in the history of economics there's always big downturns right. and how big it is and how you deal with it is always is quite tricky uh i think that there is a view maybe a hopeful view it's more status quo i think you will continue to see change you have 25,000 lsps um estimated to be in europe in the us and beyond and then another 20 plus thousand in China alone. So collectively 40, 50,000 LSPs around there. Is, is the market big enough for that $55 billion? Yeah, it supported it today. I think a lot of the small end of the market gets subsumed by the bigger players where they join as translators or there is just a changing nature of work. But I would see, I think the landscape looks a lot different five years from now than it looks today. John, what is your message for enterprise localization managers and executives? Most of them are your clients uh, as they're trying to meet their KPIs this year. <laughs> well, they would say set realistic KPIs. <laughs> uh, I think the most important thing is to is to really understand what what business problems you're trying to solve for customers. And what I say to our folks all the time is, OK, what? What is our customer trying to do? I mean, are they trying to reach a certain market? Are they trying to do more with content? Like, what are they trying to do? And then how do we build a series of capabilities that actually helps them solve a business problem? And if you and if they build KPIs around that, you're solving a business problem, not what I think are relatively um, 
uninteresting KPIs about how to measure a business. And the simple question I ask is like, how are the customers doing? And that's not a KPI that people usually use. They want to know about turnaround times and they want to know about content and they want to know productivity and utilization and lots of different things, which are all interesting. But the scorecard I say is, okay, well, how are the customers doing? Because if the customers are doing really well, then typically you are. So there's NPS scores, there's lots of other things. But as again, what I talked about before is, is content rationally moving the needle for the customer. And if you could quantify that, then you can open up lots of, lots of possibilities. Those are very interesting KPIs. As we reach the end of this conversation, John, what is your advice for a leadership in the localization industry? I mean, other LSPs, what can they both large and small do to stay ahead of the curve? You have to embrace change. If you are scared of change, it doesn't mean you're going to be successful just because you've embraced it, but to give yourself an opportunity to, to, to take advantage of changes in a marketplace um, is super important. And, and the, the smart people can think very, very clear-eyed when there's turmoil. I'm always amazed with, if you think about people that make great fortunes, a lot of times it happens in, in, the, in the, highest cent, the highest times of economic turbulence. And they're clear-eyed enough to turn the noise out and look at opportunities and say, okay, history shows me this. This opportunity actually not low risk, but has the, pay, the, the possibility to pay off. And I think w- if you look at where we're headed, um, the age of uncertainty may be the next five years in the language space. And the people that embrace uncertainty um, are not scared of it can have a clear-eyed view of what they think the future looks like and can allocate capital towards that will be the ones that are most successful. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights, John. It's very important for our industry to hear from leadership in organizations such as LineBridge. I think you have educated the industry today about the current economic challenges and opportunities and instilled confidence that our industry performs very well during these turbulent economic times. I'm hoping I can get to hear your thoughts throughout the year and follow up with you next quarter. And with that, thank you for your time and for sharing your perspective with us. Great, Salt. I enjoy that. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, it's time for my roundup of the interview and my analysis as to what has been discussed. As you heard from John, the current macroeconomic trends dictate that enterprises can leverage globalization in new markets to remain competitive and profitable. The translation and localization supplier side of the equation has their work cut out for them to deal with supply-related issues such as labor shortage, political issues in certain markets, and a tightening credit market. I personally think this environment presents incredible opportunities for LSPs to take the slack from tech firms that have shrunk their workforce in recent layoffs. Not only we have access to a bigger pool of trained and skilled labor, but we can also help bridge that gap as suppliers to these enterprises that don't have those large localization departments as the previous years, but still have to maintain the same level of service. This year will bring opportunities to those of us who are creative and brave enough to adapt to a rapidly changing landscape. That brings us to the end of this conversation with John Finley, CEO of Lionbridge. I hope you found it interesting and engaging. I will be connecting with him to discuss future conversation plans and we will bring you a lot more of this in the coming months. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice and promote this episode by sharing it on social media, giving us a like or thumbs up or adding your comments. Until next time. 
Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.